over and over again through the scriptures, God has told his people, I am strong and mighty to save. They know it from their own history that with a strong and an outstretched arm, he saved his people from the Egyptians, parting the water. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to the final of Why Do We Go Down to Egypt from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text for this series is in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 31, verses 1 through 3. We live in a world that could aptly be described as sensory overload. There are so many things constantly vying for our time and attention text notifications, a full email box, and the busyness of life can easily monopolize our time and our focus. Do you ever find yourself feeling distant from God? Or do you find it difficult to trust God through the storms of life? As Pastor Paul will explain, the reason for these symptoms could very well be a lack of time spent getting to know God in His Word. Let's consider this further in part three of Why Do We Go Down to Egypt? These are God's people. The Old Testament is their book. And time and time and time again, God has spoken to his people, revealing his character to them. Over and over again, through the scriptures, God has told his people, I am strong and mighty to save. They know it from their own history that with a strong and an outstretched arm, he saved his people from the Egyptians, parting the water. This was not new revelation to them. They knew of the character of God. And that was part of the issue. They knew the character of God. And they knew that not only is God strong, but he is also wise. Meaning, in the Lord, there is a wisdom that is not of us. When the Lord saves, he saves on his terms. He saves how he chooses They look to the Egyptians, they see a ready solution to their problem. They see a straight line from their problem to what they would like to be the solution. They look to the Lord and they see anything but a straight line. They look to the Lord and they see wisdom that is not of them. And they know that should they trust in the Lord, he will most likely lead them on a path that they would not have chosen. Isaiah hints at this simply by the name that he refers to the Lord by. He says, they do not look to the Holy One of Israel. This is Isaiah's favorite name for God. It's Isaiah's unique name for God. Prior to the book of Isaiah, God is not called the Holy One of Israel in the scriptures. Thereafter, many are pleased to use it, but it's Isaiah that introduces it to us, and it's his favorite term for God. The Holy One of Israel. And as you know, holiness, biblical holiness, does not pertain merely to a moral uprightness. When we speak about the call to be holy, God is not simply calling you to be morally upright, though he is certainly expecting that. The call to holiness is to live an entirely distinct life. Holiness is to pervade every corner of our existence. 
It is simply to be set apart, to be distinct, to be altogether other. So when Isaiah says the Holy One of Israel, he doesn't simply mean that our God is morally upright. He means in all of his ways, in all of his dealings, in all of his thoughts, in all of his words, he is altogether other. He is not like you. In just a few chapters' time, Isaiah will say, Lord, your ways are not my ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Isaiah gets it. He understands the holiness of God. I don't think like you do. My solution is not even close to your solution. Notice how Isaiah goes on to reveal something of that wisdom. Having spoken of God as the Holy One of Israel, he then says he does not retract his words. There is just a small glimpse of how it is that God goes about solving the problem. He is wise and will bring disaster. He raises up a huge army. That's not what he says. He is wise and will bring disaster and he will raise up an almighty force to fight the Assyrians and in turn the Babylonians. He is wise and will bring disaster and he doesn't retract his words. Isaiah is showing us there that the way in which the Lord does his work is through his words. He speaks. When God speaks, things happen. This is the, the paradigm that he establishes from Genesis 1 onwards. He created the universe. How? He spoke. You see how altogether other are his plans. He spoke and the universe came into being. And then how does he advance redemptive history? He raises up prophets. He speaks through Moses. He speaks through Isaiah. And then he speaks through his son. He sends his son and it's through him that he advances his plan. And then when his son ascends, he hands on the baton to the apostles and says, I want you to write. Write these letters. They are my words. And this is how the work is to be done. Never once does he say, I'm going to respond by raising up an army. He says to the Israelites, I will not retract my words. And so let's just open this up. In Isaiah's day, to the original recipients of this letter, as they were looking at the horizon and seeing the Assyrians, they understood what was coming. Isaiah says, you need to trust in God's words. Practically, what that meant at that point was you need to look at this man, Isaiah. Not that there was any inherent strength or wisdom to the man, but he was God's representative. He was speaking the words of God. So as they look at this almighty force on the northern horizon and they understand that the clock is ticking and most likely they'll be next, they're commended to look at this man, Isaiah. That's my solution. So you can see how it is that the people of God might choose to go down to Egypt. It is not only that in Egypt they find a solution, but at the same time in the Lord they find wisdom. And that wisdom is not altogether palatable. It can be a very difficult thing to embrace the wisdom of God. Again, it's, it's no different for us. The issues present themselves differently, but underlying it is the same heart problems. 
We understand what God calls us to. We understand the responsibilities that he gives us as brothers in Christ. We understand that we're to strive for unity in the body. We understand that when our brother or sister sins against us over and over and over again, he calls us to forgive them. We understand that we're to lay our lives down for the sake of others. This is the wisdom of God on display, and yet it is so hard to embrace. The wonder of the gospel is that that says God's wisdom is the very best thing for you. Embrace my wisdom. Not only will it put me on display, not only will it commend the gospel to those around you, it's actually the very best thing for your heart. But we struggle to embrace it. God's wisdom is one that says you need salvation and in order to accomplish it, I'm going to send my son to die on a cross. If I could have asked you how you would solve that problem, the problem of the enormous chasm that exists between you and God, if I had been able to remove all knowledge of the gospel from your mind and say, how would you solve that problem? I guarantee not in a thousand years would you come up with the plan that God came up with. Never would you say, how about God sends his son and he delights to crush him on the cross and through that I will be saved. And that gospel by which you have been saved, that gospel that secures your eternal right standing before God, then becomes for us an example. As God saves you, as you look to Christ as the substance of your faith, immediately he then becomes your example. Every single day, God is saying to you, look to my son. He's got a cross on his back. Now pick up yours and follow him. That is the wisdom of God that comes to you through the gospel narrative each and every day. He does not intend for you to be saved by that message and then live a different life. He says, as you are the beneficiary of my son's death on the cross, now follow him. Pick up your cross, die to self, and show the world something of my wisdom. As husbands, we're to die to self. Our preferences get put to one side. Because God has called us into a marriage. And the Bible says we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And yet you yourself know how you fail to do that. You yourself know how you go down to Egypt within the context of your marriage. You see another solution and you know that the wisdom of God is a difficult path to tread out. As fathers, we're called to die to self. God has called you to be the head of a family, to raise children in such a way that they know of Christ. But you know how regularly you go down to Egypt. You see an easier path. You feel problems, you feel the, the reality of raising children in a broken world and there are options on the table and you pick the straight line between your perceived problem and the solution. And at the same time, you're choosing not to pursue the path of the Lord. Why? Because his wisdom is a difficult path. The Lord never ever guarantees you a comfortable existence. It's not in his word. He hasn't issued that promise to you. He's never said to you, follow my son and life will be rosy. I was saved at 21. And I remember sitting in 
my friend's room at university. He was walking through the Gospel of Mark with me. And then the next semester, we went through portions of Isaiah together. And really, this was the first time ever I was learning the claims of Christianity. I really had no Christian influence in my upbringing. And at the age of 21, for the first time, I was learning what it was the Bible claimed. And it was readily apparent to me, very early on, if I do this, life gets hard. I remember saying to my friend, a lot of people put up the excuse that religion is just a crutch. I said, I know people say that, I can't see it. I don't know how they argue that because from what I'm seeing, if I buy into this, life gets hard. Far from being a crutch, God calls you to a very difficult path to pick up your cross and to follow in the likeness of his son. And this is his wisdom. Now notice, if we choose to ignore it, the end is not good. Isaiah goes on and says the Egyptians are men, they're not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand and he who helps will stumble. He who is helped will fall. All of them will come to an end together. So Isaiah makes plain in an all-encompassing way, both the helper and the helped will stumble. If the testimony of your life is one wherein you really have never demonstrated a level of trust in the Lord, regardless of what you say and regardless of what you might look like on a Sunday, on the last day, the Lord will not claim you as his own. If your life is one lived where there really is no evidence of having trusted in the Lord, there is nothing to suggest that you belong to him. And the end is not one where you flourish. Quite the opposite. So what is the solution? Isaiah gives us just a hint of it here. If we look back up to verse 1, the original problem was that the people do not look to the Holy One of Israel. The antidote to this problem is wonderfully simple. Praise the Lord, he doesn't call us to figure everything out. Praise the Lord, it is not the case that God saves us and then says, now you better figure everything out and you better get it right. God gives us a beautifully simple solution. It is the same solution by which we're saved and it is that we look to him. We look at him. They did not look to the Holy One of Israel. Our calling is to look to God. We are to look at God through his word. And the living and active word of God has a funny way of working in our heart. When our pattern is to consistently look at God, to take him in, in all of his wonderful excellencies, in all of his attributes, as we enamor our hearts with God, everything else falls into place. When your pattern, when your habit, when the habit of your life that you have carved out is one wherein you look at the Holy One of Israel, things just start falling into place. The things that you would be tempted to trust in, 
the things that you would be tempted to run to that are not the Lord, don't commend themselves any longer to you. You see them for what they are, flimsy, temporary, superficial. There might be a place for enjoying these good things in life, but they are not the object of your trust. You look at them and say, why would I trust in that? Why would I trust in a horse or a chariot? Because I've seen the Lord. This day I rose and I opened this book and I saw God. So why would I meet with trust in this thing over here? And then secondly, if your life pattern is one wherein you look to the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, you are able to embrace his wisdom. You're not ignorant of it. In fact, you're fairly skilled in it. You understand it more for having looked at him. You're not ignorant of the difficult path that he calls you to. But having looked at him and seen the king in all of his splendor, you readily embrace it. You say, I know, and I embrace it. And if I can just make specific application to a room of men, your life's calling is not only to look to the Lord, but to lead others in doing the same thing. You especially are called to lead others in looking to the Lord. You need to lead your wife in looking at the Lord. You need to run to this book holding your wife's hand. You need to bring her to this book so that together you would be looking to the Holy One of Israel. You need to lead your children so as to look to the Lord. You need to figure out the dynamics of your home and all the busyness and the schedules and everything that you said yes to, all of the responsibilities that you have. You need to figure them out so that a priority in your home is that you would all look to the Lord. However that might look on a day-to-day -day basis, you need to lead your children so that they see the Lord in his word. They have no hope apart from it. And you need to be the first to lead them in that direction. And then you need to be leaders in the church. You need to lead in the church. You don't need a position. You don't need a title. You don't need a salary. You just need church membership. And then you grab someone close to you and you say, look at the Lord with me. You grab someone close to you and say, come with me and let's look at God together. You make use of whatever influence God has given you. You leverage the relationships of, of discipling. You humble yourself and say, I haven't got this figured out, but I know the solution. Would you come along with me and let's look at God together? And if you would be faithful to do this day after day, week after week, you start to present yourself as one who is trustworthy. You start to be someone who trusts in others. The church becomes what the church is intended to be. A community of people that are doing life together to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. But it starts with you looking at the Lord. May that be true of all of us here this morning. Let's pray now to close. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We're grateful that we sit here this morning with a copy of 
the inspired, inerrant scriptures in our hands. And we see in it truth, truth concerning our own sin, our own failings, the truth that so often we do go down to Egypt. We choose other things. We pick out a solution that is not from you, but it solves our perceived problems. It gives us a very quick, ready answer. So often we do prioritize a life of comfort and ease over opportunities to advance the gospel. And we pray that you would forgive us for that. You haven't called us to a fantastic ministry. You don't call us to do something that is earth shattering. You call us to a very simple path of obedience, to be part of the church, to gather with your saints, to pray and fellowship together, to sit under your word together. This is the means that you've ordained by which you'll do your work. And we seek forgiveness for the times when we haven't devoted ourselves to that and prioritized a life of, of comfort. Lord, there are times when we don't choose to trust in you simply because we know how hard it is. We know that your wisdom is not our wisdom. Our ways are not your ways. And you call us to a difficult path. As we see that you sent your son to walk with a cross on his back, to be crucified, to be rejected. As that is the message of our salvation, it's also the message of our sanctification. It is the means by which we're to live this life and so often we don't embrace it because we see how hard it can be. We don't trust you and we pray that you'd forgive us. Please work in our hearts, help us to look to you. Above all things, help us to take in your glory as we see it in your word. Trusting that in, in doing that, everything else would start to fall into place. We would see the world for what it is. We wouldn't be tempted to trust in other things. We would acknowledge soberly what your wisdom is, but we would joyfully embrace it. And Father, I do pray that you would help us to lead as men in the church. Help us to lead. Help us to lead in our marriages to lead our spouse in looking to you, to lead our children in looking to you. Help us to lead in the church, to be faithful, to grab other saints, and to very simply say, come look at the Lord with me. I do pray this would be our reality. By your grace and for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Do you long to trust God more? Pastor Paul taught us today that the antidote to a lack of trust is clear and simple. He delved into the rich truths of Isaiah chapter 31. The more we look at God through his word and spend quality time reading the Bible, the more God will work in our hearts and strengthen our faith. The book of Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word is powerful enough to transform our hearts by increasing our faith. God's Word can also introduce us to the saving work of Jesus Christ for the first time. 
The Bible says, today is the day of salvation. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts. There you'll find an archive of Pastor Paul's teachings, all free for the listening. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. Come Sunday, if you don't have a local church to attend, come worship with us, 10.30 a.m. every Sunday. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Hope you'll join us on Monday. We begin a new series with part one of The Gospel Tragedy from Pastor Paul Twist. I'm Matt Williams. Hope you have a great weekend, and thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.